If you're doing good, say I am. If you're glad to be here, say I am. Amen. Well, I wasn't going to share this. I sat down last night to get ready for service, and I just wrote down some thoughts. But we had a share time in the back a while ago, and what was said was like, oh, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to read it. So this is my thoughts that I have you. Because I, I don't believe me as a worship leader, us as worship leaders, we start and stop worship. We just kind of aim it. Okay, so we're going to aim it um, real quick. Um, because Jesus is alive, we can stand here today with hope in our hearts so no matter what circumstances or situations that we find ourselves in today we have a promise the promise of his presence through all the seasons of life he's with us and he has made his home in us so let's bring all our joy and all our sadness all our doubt and all our fears all our hurts and all our hang-ups and worship Jesus a God who never leaves us or forsakes us, a God who sticks with us through it all, who hears us and who helps us. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Cast my mind to Calvary. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior, a cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The ancient seal by heavy stone. Messiah, Messiah steel. And all Let's lift it up this morning. Sing, oh, praise the name. Oh, praise the name of the Break up. 
blazing sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the seas the gaze transfixed on Jesus' Therefore I no longer live, yet the life I live now, still in this body, I live by faith in Jesus, by Christ in me, amen? We can rest in that promise today that He not only is life for us, but He is life to us. Sing it if you know it. Be my life. Oh, be my life, Lord, I surrender. One day is better with you than all the world. Oh, Spirit of life, help me remember that it is my pleasure to say to you that all I, my life be fine.
that you're here today and that you chose to worship at Fellowship Bible Church in Rogers. I want you to know that you are welcome here. And uh, as Heath said, some of us are full of doubt. Some of us are full of faith and all are welcome here. In the back, in the center booth, we have lots of information. We'd love to connect if you're new and you're not connected here. We'd love to get you connected. I'm Jason McMahon, the Global Outreach Pastor, and I'm super, super pumped to be with you guys today. I've just got to go to Southeast Asia for two weeks and just got back because we've sent out seven of our families literally to the other side of the earth after doing that flight. You can feel that. Uh, literally to the other side of the earth to make disciples and to teach them to obey all that they've commanded. And so Jimmy Cummings and I got the honor of doing that for the last two weeks. We went to go care for people and to encourage them and then you guys know how that goes. We came back home, our hearts full and encouraged. These guys have laser focus on how to make disciples in some of the hardest places in the world. And we got to meet with these families and hear their hearts about their strategies, about how they're trusting Jesus, how they're counting on the Holy Spirit to show up, how they're counting on God to show up at the Red Sea and part the sea in these tough, tough moments. And these are our families. These are our people that sit in this church and said, you know what, I'm full of sacrifice, I'm full of faith, I'm full of obedience, send me to go do this. And so, as I've done this, one of the families that you've met up here with me before earlier was Andrew and Rebecca, and they're over there working with young adults and college students, 
and working side by side alongside Indonesians. And they're going and trying to attack college campuses for these stories that we're studying, these resurrection stories, because that's where the divide comes. How do you believe about the resurrection and these post-resurrection appearances? So they get to take that good news to people who've never heard it correctly for the first time. Isn't that crazy? That we get to come here every week and we hear, I mean, I could go home just after these two songs and what he said and be encouraged. And there's people who've never heard this. And people from our body that we support, that we pray for, said, send us, we're gonna go do that. And so, Andrew, I asked him this question. I said, hey, if there's anything you want me to know, the folks back home to know, what would it be? And he said, I know they're full of doubt. I'm full of doubt. I've sold all my stuff. I moved halfway across the world, and I'm full of doubt. But I know if you go to make disciples, Jesus promises that he'll show up. My experience says that's true. He said, tell them to glorify God in all that they do, Look for ways to make disciples. Trust for Jesus to show up. But he said this. He said, this is what I think they miss if they don't do it, if they don't get in the game. He said, they don't realize that Jesus will show up and that you get to commune with him in a different way. And he said, I really want my home church to know that. I've experienced that. Thank you for the prayers. And so we've got a video here that we want to show you of them that's an update of what's going on with them. And so we're going to play it. Hi, I'm Lisa with Fellowship Global. Did you know that this congregation supports 30 global leaders with 21 kids? Most of these families live among groups of people who don't know anyone who follows Jesus. In the service right now, there's a video playing highlighting one of these couples in Southeast Asia. They're coaching a man that I'll call Y. Y went to a remote village and began studying the Bible with another man. Over many, many months, this man decided to follow Jesus. Now, he's studying the scripture with his three sisters. Would you stop right now and pray for this family? Pray for receptive hearts, that they would understand how much God loves them and that they would respond. This couple also wants students at one of the most prestigious universities in their country to know the love of God. Would you pray for their team as they're trying to figure out how do we share the gospel uh, in this new place? Uh, pray, pray for wisdom, pray for favor, uh, and then pray that God would raise up leaders who could help them take the gospel to the other students. Lastly, I wanna thank you for your prayers and your generosity to help these 30 global leaders live among peoples who've never heard of Jesus, help them be the sweet aroma of Christ. Thank you.
seated as we go into a time of giving.
pray together. Father, we are thankful and grateful for the love that you have poured into our hearts because of the work of Jesus Christ. So we know it's a bunch of love. It's unending love that we've been freely given. And we know that because of that, we can freely give it. Help us in that, Father. Lead us in that, Father. We love you. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, you can take a seat. Good morning, fellowship. My name's Caleb Freeman. I'm on the teaching team here at our uh, Rogers congregation. And I'm the newest member of that teaching team. In fact, I, I, I've gotten to meet a lot of you, but there's several of you I haven't gotten to know yet. And so I thought this morning, I might just take a little bit of time and kind of introduce myself. I, uh, I spend part my time working with our student ministry, overseeing our student ministers, and then the other half, I work on the community team. Uh, like I said, my name's Caleb. My wife and I have been married for almost 10 years. This summer will be 10 years. We've got uh, three kids, and I've been on staff, I think, for now seven years. And so I'm actually originally from uh, southwest Missouri, and so that's the most strategic way that I really know how to tell you that I'm from Branson, Missouri. Uh, because on, to be honest, the mo it's the most distracting thing that I could say. When I tell people that I am from Branson, Missouri, this is how it goes down. People lose their minds. I look at them, I go, hey, I'm from Branson, Missouri. And they go, what? And they begin to put their shoulders up like a cat that's scared. They cock their head and they just give me eagle eyes. And there's just a moment of silence as they stare at me. And I look at them and I begin to shake my head and they just start shaking theirs and I break the silence by going, yes, I'm from Branson, Missouri. And you can see them quivering a little bit. They don't know what to do. And they look at me and they go, I didn't, I, I didn't even know people lived in Branson. <laughs> Again, there's a moment of silence. I look at them and I, and I have to break it and I'm trying not to be rude, but I go, I literally just told you I lived there. And they back up again. They don't know what to do. And literally, this happens all the time. The people after you say that, they're either going to pass out or they're going to have a seizure. But again, they look at me and they always say, oh, I, I didn't even know that there were houses in Branson. And so I like to mess with them at this point. I usually lean in and I go, guess what? I'm going to blow your mind. We got neighborhoods, and they just about fall over on the ground. They can't comprehend that someone would live in the same spot that Dolly Parton has a stampede. They can't comprehend that there are houses behind the Titanic. They just don't understand. And, and I think, honestly, living and growing up in Branson probably shaped some of the way that I am. I'm probably who I am because of Branson and all that goes on there. In fact, I'd like to say that I, I'm somebody who typically likes to think about the next big thing. I'm kind of focused on the next season of life. I like to look out ahead. I call it being a dreamer. My wife, who is a nurse, says it's called being ADHD. But either way, I like it. And, and, and it's honestly something that I remember doing since I was a little kid. I can remember being in junior high, and I'm walking into the halls of Branson Junior High and thinking to myself, man, once I make the basketball team, that's when I'll have arrived. I just got to make the basketball team and then everything will be good. I'll have made it at that point. And so what did I do? I went and tried out. And to my surprise, and probably the surprise of everybody else, I actually made it. But I, but I quickly learned that there is a difference between making a team and actually playing for that team. 
And so my mind shift, or my, my mind began to think of the next thing, and I began to say, no, no, no. I'll, I'll have arrived in life once I actually begin to play. Once I get some minutes during a game, that's when I'll really fit in here at this school. That's when I'll really know who I am. But the problem is that was never gonna happen because I was horrible, and I was also tiny. I mean, I, I was an infant as a child in, in junior high. You see, most kids, most boys, especially junior high, high school, that's kind of the pubescent years, right? They're going through puberty. Not this guy. Mm-mm, not me. I'm what you call a late bloomer, all right? And so while most people were growing, I was actually getting smaller because every night I'd be on my knees praying in my room to the God of all hormones that he would inject me with some testosterone that I could actually be big enough so I could go play in a game and finally meet it. But it never happened. And so my mind went to the next thing and I began to say, no, if I just graduate Once I graduate high school, that's when I'll have made it in life. Life will be fun. I'll experience everything there is. I'll be grown up. I just got to graduate. And so to my surprise, and probably the surprise of everybody else in the school, I did graduate. And I went off to my undergrad. But you know where this story's going. A few years into my undergrad, what did I start doing? I started thinking about the next season of life. And I said, oh, it's when I graduate college. And I have a job and I make some money, and I don't have school in the evenings, and, and that is when I'll actually have arrived. When I get married and I have a spouse, that's when life will be easy. That's when I'll have made it. In fact, as I look at this, I think I still think that way. So much of my life has been about viewing life almost as if it's about arriving at some destination, whatever that is. I make it about getting to the next season of life. And in fact, I think a lot of us do that because a lot of us will say, I'll be able to slow down once soccer season's done. Yeah, I'll be able to rest once we get through the holidays. I'll be a better parent once things slow down at work. I'll be more present at home once I don't have to be present elsewhere. And we begin to make life about reaching some destination. But the problem is the destination is just something that we've imagined. It's not even real. It's something that we're hoping for. And you know, as I was studying the passage that we're going to look at today, I actually was convicted for this type of thinking. Because what I realized is by being so focused on the future or my imagination of the future, what I inevitably do is I push off the calling that Jesus has put in my life for today. And I begin to reject the calling and the commissioning that he's given to me under the idea that I'll just do that in the future whenever I arrive. You see, today we're gonna look at the Great Commission. It's found in Matthew 28. If you wanna open up your Bibles, we'll also have the words up here. But I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give you a spoiler at the very beginning. What we're gonna see in this section is Jesus commissioning his disciples and Jesus empowering his disciples. He's gonna send them out on a mission. But he's not gonna send them out alone. No, he's gonna enable them to complete that mission. And I'll give you another spoiler. I think the same commissioning that the disciples receive is one that we receive. The the same command that Jesus gives his followers also applies to us. And so does the empowering. So let's look at it. Matthew 28, it says this, the, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And and let me give you a little bit of context. Remember, this is taking place after the resurrection. So Mary has gone to the empty tomb. 
She actually met Jesus, and Jesus says, I want you to go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. So Mary does. And the disciples knew where to go, if you want to make a little note, because actually in Matthew 26, before Jesus' death, Jesus tells them, hey, when I come back to life, guess what? Go meet me in Galilee. And so the disciples head off to meet their risen Savior. And as they're heading there, they, it says that they saw him. And some worshiped him, and then some doubted. And before we begin to just rag on the disciples, constantly putting them down for their doubts and misunderstandings, I think we should put ourselves in their shoes a little bit. Because this is a pretty preposterous situation. It would be really disorienting. As you're walking to see your savior, your friend, your king, who you just saw die. But the text tells us that some of them worshiped and some of them were filled with doubt. This, this idea that we get for doubt is from the word distasso. It's not used often in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used one other time at another perplexing situation where Peter is sinking in the water. And so it's got a wide variety of meanings, but I think that actually helps us understand what the disciples who are filled with distasso are experiencing. They could be feeling this for multiple reasons. One of being, they're just confused because they're walking from a distance and out ahead, they see a man that looks very familiar, but totally new. Someone that they have memories with, but doesn't bear scars of his torturous death, but these trophies of his triumph over death. And they're looking at this man and they're confused, or maybe they're filled with hesitation. Do, am I supposed to worship the resurrected king? Am I supposed to run to him? Am I supposed to stay here? Maybe it's an uncertainty. From the distance, they go, that looks like Jesus. I, I hope it's Jesus. And maybe it is just doubt. That they go, I just don't believe that that's possible. I don't believe that that's real. I don't believe that that is actually him. But whatever this is, the worship and the distasso, that doubt, that's actually not the point. It's the context for the point. Because after we see what they do, we see what Jesus does. And it says that Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, Jesus comes up to the disciples who are this mixed bag of worship and doubt, and he approaches them, and he says this line, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And, and I think what Jesus is saying outright is he's God. He looks at him and he goes, I'm the God of the universe. Crown me the king. I just conquered death. This whole place is mine. But in addition to him stating his divinity right here, I think the statement of all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, it does three things for the people who are present with him. I think, first of all, Jesus saying this is a bit of encouragement, both to the, the group of disciples who were worshiping and to those who were doubting. To, to those in that first category, the worshipers, Jesus approaches them and says, you're right, I am who you think I am. I'm the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. It is right for you to worship me. And to those who were filled with that doubt, that uncertainty, Jesus doesn't rebuke them in this line. He doesn't reject them. He approaches them and he says, don't worry. 
I'm who you hope I am. It is actually me. I'm back. And I'm going to send you, independent of how you feel, I'm going to send you. Not only is this statement encouragement to the disciples, I also think it reinstitutes the disciples in, into a position. You see, previously they were followers of Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus. But all of that changed. And as Jesus looks at them and says, you once were followers of Jesus, he says, all authority is mine. I'm sending you out. You are now followers of the resurrected Jesus. And he places, this, places them in this new position of being disciples of the God who conquered death. And after reinstituting them into this position of discipleship under the resurrected king, Jesus also clarifies something to them, saying, I am not just a preacher of the faith, but I'm the very object of your faith. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a prophet of the faith. I'm the very point of the Christian faith. I mean, this line sets up everything as Jesus begins to encourage them and reinstitute them and clarify them right before he sends them. It goes into the section of commissioning, the sending, where Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, baptize them and teach them. And in fact, it's actually a command what Jesus is telling his followers to do, his disciples. And we can, we can clearly see what that command is. And I'll just tell you, the command is to make disciples. And the reason we know that that's the command is because in this section, it's the imperative verb. Aren't you excited to be in English class? Remember imperative verbs? They're commands. They're things like do the dishes, make the bed. That probably tells you a lot about me on how I view commands. But Jesus looks to his disciples and he actually says, go make disciples. And, and I imagine that the people there would have had some understanding of what that means. I mean, I, I bet they had some grasp of what it meant to go make a disciple. And I think we do too. There's probably some of us in here who could go, yeah, I could decently explain what it means to make a disciple. But lucky for them and lucky for us, Jesus doesn't leave it just up to interpretation he clarifies very specifically what he means when he says, make disciples. And he clarifies this by saying, go make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the reason that we know that this is Jesus clarifying what it means to make disciples is because these words that we have for baptizing and for teaching they're actually called participles. In fact, they're adverbial participles. Yep, you can push up your glasses. Welcome to class again. But what an adverbial participle does is it actually, it describes the manner or the means by which the verb is to be executed. So the words baptizing and teaching, they actually tell us the very way in which the command verb, make disciples, is to be completed. So Jesus gives his followers the command, go and make disciples. And I specifically want you to do that through this process, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And like I said at the beginning, I think that's the same command that we have. I think that we are called and commissioned, that we are sent to make disciples through this process. 
And, and so what I want us to do is I want us to actually look at what that would mean. What would it mean for us today to make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them and teaching them? And here's what I think it is. The very first, to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think the best way for us to understand that is to say, it means to introduce people to Jesus. It means that we get to tell people who Jesus is. We get to walk them into his presence. We get to be people who spread the gospel, saying that Jesus is actually God, that he lived the life we couldn't. He died the death we deserve. He rose to new life so that we too might obtain the resurrection with him. We get to spread the good news in our life and in our words. We get to be people who demonstrate the goodness of our God, his creativity and love, his grace and mercy, his justice and his truth. We get to be people who actually live as God intended us to. And what do we call that? Evangelism. To make disciples by, by baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think the best way to understand that is to evangelize, to introduce people to Jesus. And, and I don't think that Christ is just speaking in code here. I, I, I don't think he's just being kind of mystic and he's like, I'm going to say baptism, but I mean evangelism. We can understand that he means evangelism if we understand what baptism is. Remember, baptism is an outward declaration of an inward decision, an inward decision to give our life unto the Savior, Jesus, to accept his grace and forgiveness and then begin to follow him. And when we make that decision inwardly, we get to outwardly declare it. So when Jesus says, make disciples by baptizing them, I think he's being serious. We are called to lead people into baptism, but the step that comes before their baptism is for them to know Christ, for them to have met Jesus, for them to have surrendered to the risen king. After they've been introduced to Jesus, the next step then is to teach them the commands of Christ. And, and I think the way that we can understand this is that means for us to teach them the way of Jesus, to teach them the life of Jesus, to live like Christ. And, and we know that's what it's talking about because there's a very important word up here. And I think it's that word observe, right? Because there's a difference between teaching someone the commands of Christ and teaching them to observe those commands, we know that difference, right? We, we know the difference between knowing some of your Bible and actually modeling your life around the truth found within the scriptures. And we know the difference between knowing some of what Jesus said and actually forming the habits of your life around the holy habits of Christ. And when Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, he's looking at them and saying, teach them. Teach them the new way of life that I have taught you the way of living like I intended you to, the way of living like I have done, the way of living as a real human being was intended to live. Jesus says, go and teach them to observe. Well, for us, that means that we get to do the very same thing. We introduce people to Christ, and then we teach them the way of Christ. But who do we do this for? Well, Jesus also makes it pretty clear who we're to do it for. He says, make disciples of all nations. And you know, I, I just for a second, I want you all to know that we believe that here and that we take that very seriously at fellowship. We believe that we have been sent to the globe to introduce people to Christ and teach them the way of Christ. 
mean, you heard Jason this morning. We've, we, you heard what we believe in. We've got, did you know here just from the Rogers congregation, we have 30 global workers who have 21 kids. These are real people who are in eight different countries working with 58 unreached people groups. We actually believe that we've been sent to the nations. And you being here is a pledge of your active support to those people who are out there. We believe that we've been called to go to the nations, all of them. But we also recognize that the word all means all nations, and that would include our own, and that would include Arkansas, and that would include Northwest Arkansas. And I want you to know that here at Fellowship, we believe that we're called to make disciples right here. I want to introduce you to a man named Zach Lewandowski. He's in the green. Uh, Zach was a resident with us this year. He's an unbelievable young man. And he's been a longtime small group leader for us. You see, when Zach was a freshman in college, he and some of his friends decided that they wanted to lead a Wednesday night Bible study for some seventh grade boys. And so they began to meet with these seventh grade boys, and they still do. In fact, those seventh graders are now about to finish their junior year of high school before they go on to be seniors. Well, Zach and his buddies, they're, they're, you know, they're 18, 19 years old, freshmen in college, and each week they begin to meet with these seventh grade boys, these squirrels. <laughs> this is where I'll introduce you to Coglin, the kid in the red. You see, Coglin showed up to that first cell group in seventh grade. And he became, became, uh, began to come each and every week. He came his seventh grade year, his eighth grade year, but he actually stopped coming in ninth grade. And, and Coglin stopped coming because he would tell you he was an atheist. He just didn't believe what was being said. I mean, he'd say it outright. I, I don't believe in what you're teaching. I don't believe that the Bible is true. I don't believe that God is real. And I don't believe that Jesus is God. And so he stopped coming. But the Lord didn't give up on Coglin, and he continued to work in his heart. In fact, all the boys that were in that group would invite Coglin to continue to come to group. The leaders that they'd see him would invite him to come until this past fall. As, as Coglin's about to go into his junior year of high school, he shows back up at cell group. And he shows up at the first one. He's talking to the leaders, and he's open and honest with everybody. I still don't believe this stuff, but I'm here. Because the Lord was beginning to work in his heart. Eventually, a few weeks in, Coglin looks at Zach Lewandowski and says, hey, can we grab coffee? And Zach smiles and says, yeah, of course. And so those two, before heading to school, meet at Red Kite in Springdale, and they're talking. Zach eventually begins to ask the question, Coglin, tell me, what do you think of when you picture God? And Coglin, in his wonderful honesty, said, look, I, I think he's a construct, I don't think he's real. I, I, I honestly, I picture this guy with a beard with a lot of lights and Burks on. That's what I think of. And Zach kind of smiles at him and goes, yeah, that would be hard to put my faith in. Hey, would you mind Coglin, if we continued to meet? And I would love to try and paint the picture of who scripture says that God is. And the, the Lord was working in Coglin's heart because Coglin said, yes. And so from that point on, for each and every week, Zach would meet with Coglin. And he started in the Old Testament, working his way through the New, pointing out to Coglin all the areas that Scripture described God, and specifically working to show him that Jesus is that God. 
He points out Genesis 3, just like Mark Yarbrough was talking about, that that's the Messiah. He points out the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the suffering servant in Isaiah, just working his way through the scriptures. And it gets into this spring semester. All of our students are signing up for spring break mission trips, but Coughlin isn't. Why would he? He doesn't believe. And then with some holy peer pressure, we might call it, a week or two before, Coughlin ends up getting the last spot on the trip to Denver which is the trip that Zach was leading. And the Lord was working in his heart because Coghlan would tell you driving out there, he didn't even know why he was going. He would look at you and go, I have no clue what I'm doing here. I don't even wanna be here, but the Lord wanted him there. And the Holy Spirit began to tinker and work and move in his life so much so that everyone on the trip was seeing it to the point that Zach sits down with Coghlan one morning and he runs to Mark 9 and he says, hey, look, there's this man, he's got a son who's hurting, but, and he wants Jesus to help him, but he falls on his knees and he says, I do believe Jesus, help my unbelief. And Zach begins to paint the picture that Jesus is the God who can not only rescue us into new life, pick us up into new life, but the very one who gives us the faith to follow him. And Zach leans over and he goes, what do you think about that? Tears streaming down his face. And Coughlin says, I just can't put my trust in that. And Zach, kind of shocked by the answer, not thinking it would go there, is like, oh, to I mean, no pressure, but the last thing that he can muster up is, would you pray about it? And the Lord was working through those prayers and the prayers of the other leaders because just a few nights later, as, as the trip was ending, Coglin, after a night of worship, leans over to the group that he's with and he goes, hey, I have doubts but the little faith that I do have, I want to put in Jesus. And it was that night that Coughlin actually met Christ for the first time, that he came to know the Lord. Just a few weeks ago on a spring break mission trip, this boy came to know the Lord. And, and I think that's actually how we would describe this story, that we would go, oh, that's a beautiful story of someone coming to know the Lord. Let me back up a bit, because I actually think this is a story of making disciples, because Zach and Coughlin are still meeting. Zach and all the other leaders from the time Coughlin was in seventh grade to just a few weeks ago, what were they doing? They were introducing this young man to Jesus with their invitations, with their hospitality, with their patience, with the, the scriptures that they were going over. Everything that they were doing was an introduction into, the who, into who God was. But it didn't end there for them, and it doesn't. Zach and Coughlin are still meeting. And what is Zach doing now? He's teaching Coglin the way of Jesus, what it means to live like Christ, how to model his life after Christ, how to observe all the commands that Jesus, that Jesus has given us. You see, Zach is someone who recognizes that he's been called to make disciples here. And it's the call that we all have. In fact, if you need help knowing what it means to make disciples, ladies, right after this in the family center, there, there's a roundtable discussion on the practices of discipling people. I'd invite you to join. And now I know a lot of you are probably looking at me and you're going, I know what he's going to ask me to do. He's going to say, go make disciples. And you're, you're right. That is what I'm going to do. You caught me. But before I do that, before I say, go and make disciples, go with me here for a second. You see, I think there's a lot of us who have probably been introduced to Jesus but we've never been taught the way of Jesus 
Or maybe the inverse is true, that, that we know generally what it means to live like Christ, but we've actually never met him. If that's you, can, can I ask you to be really brave this week? Can I, can I dare you to do something? Go ask someone to disciple you. Go find someone that you respect, that you look to, that you say, oh, the way they live their life is different. They know what it means to have met Jesus, and they know what it means to, have, to be following Jesus. And go ask them to teach you the way of Christ, to introduce you to the living God. And if you're one of those people who gets asked, or maybe you're someone in here who you go, yeah, I, I know Jesus, and I've been walking with him, but I'm not, I'm not really ready to make disciples can I remind you that it is a command from the resurrected king to make disciples of all the nations? And you see, typically the reason that I hear for why we're scared to do this is I hear people say, oh, I'll be able to make disciples once I'm a little bit older. I'll be able to make disciples when I know my Bible better. I'll be able to make disciples when I get this sin thing under control. I'll be able to make disciples when I reach the next season of life. But isn't that the problem we talked about at the beginning? We make life all about arriving at some destination. And when we make it about arriving at some destination, inevitably we push off the very calling that Jesus has put in our life for today. We begin to reject the very things that Jesus has brought before us, the very people that Jesus has put in our life, because we're saying, oh, I'll be able to do what God has called me to do, but I'll wait to do it until I think I'm ready. But let's be honest. We're never ready, right? We're never able to make these disciples on our own. It's never been about us. The, the, the reasons we give is, I'm not wise enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not big enough, I'm not good enough, but it's not about us. It wasn't about our actions. It's not about the disciples' actions. I actually think it's about Jesus' actions. And you can see it in the verses. It says they worshiped him, but some, what, doubted. And what does Jesus do in the midst of their doubt? He came to them. You see, Jesus commissions his people. That's absolutely true. But his commissioning is always coupled with his empowering. And we see the empowerment of Christ throughout this, these verses everywhere. I think specifically in the very fact that Jesus was willing to go to his disciples. They see him from a distance. And what do they do? They doubt. But Jesus doesn't doubt his decision to send them because of their doubts. He's not confused by their confusion. He's not hesitating because of their hesitation. He's not uncertain if he made the right choice because of their uncertainties. No, he knows what he's doing. He goes to them and he says, I'm God. All authority is in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go make disciples. Baptize them, teach them. And then he gives this unbelievable promise. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promises to be with them. The very means of their empowerment is the means of Christ. And I think, I, I think that's amazing because it's totally different. You see, in the Old Testament, God would empower, he would, he would send his workers and give them a sign of his empowerment. Think about Moses. He sends Moses and what does he say? Hey, when you throw your staff on the ground, It'll turn into a serpent. That's a sign for you that I've sent you. And it's a sign to Pharaoh that I've sent you. Jesus does not give his followers a sign. Jesus empowers his disciples to make disciples by giving him, them himself. 
The empowerment to make disciples is the very presence of the resurrected king. The, the power of a God who, who can overcome the grave, who can turn water into wine, and who can walk with you and actually wants to walk with you. You see, Jesus commissions his people and he always empowers them. It wasn't about what the disciples could do. It's about the living God working through them. And guess what? He sent you. But it isn't about what you can do. It's about how the Lord wants to and will and does work through you. Rest in that beauty that you've got a God who knows what he's doing. So much so that he wants to welcome you into his redemption and then he wants to work through you to bring that redemption to others. Praise the Lord. Hey, could we... Could we do something? Could you guys actually stand with me for a second? And as we get ready to behold the, the, the living God, I, I want you to read these verses with me. Could we read the Great Commission, remembering that that God sends us? And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, my hope fellowship is that you wouldn't just read these words, you wouldn't just see them, you wouldn't just hear them, but you'd actually know them, that you'd feel them, that they'd be like a little echo bouncing around in your heart that you recognize that it's so true that the God who sent you is the same God who empowers you. And in that fitting, that the promise that Jesus gives at the end of the book of Matthew is the same promise we see at the beginning, behold, I'm with you. But go to chapter one where it says, behold, a child will be born from the virgin. His name is to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. The God who was promised at the beginning is the God at the end who says, I'm with you. Fellowship, could we, before we go, take a moment and behold him, recognizing that he's the God of all wisdom and all power and all love this morning. Would you sing with us? God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. God is an awesome God. Son God. He's an awesome God, He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Oh, we sing all praise, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forever. Amen.
Well, fellowship, thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. Hey, if you need prayer, don't neglect that need. Come find somebody. We've got people in the prayer room who would love to meet with you. As you walk out, would you go talk with somebody? Would you say hello and this week introduce somebody to Jesus, teach them the way of Jesus? Let's go make disciples, amen? We love you all. We'll see you next week.